So being a Christian far transcends scripture. It is scripture and people and soul and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit that really doesn't care about our rules or our buildings or our bills. So mm. being gay within Christianity, the only problem is other people. It's not between me and God in scripture. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. Hello, Seekers. I'm joined today by Eileen Gebby. Eileen has been a college professor, a nonprofit executive, a staff person for Community Organizing Alliance, and a parish priest for the United Church of Christ. She's now bringing all these skills to bear in spiritual direction and forest therapy, and I can't wait to talk with her more about those two topics. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah. So, you know, when when we met, uh, you kind of told me the story about how you graduated from the U of I with a degree in sociology. And most recently, you've been pastoring a church, a UCC church in Ames, Iowa, over the last couple of years. And so what brought you back to East Central Illinois? Holy Ghost power which is the power to move you when you don't want to be moved. And I got that from Robert Duvall's movie, The Apostle, and I think it's the best description of the Holy Spirit that I've ever had. Um, I was in a wonderful church in Ames, Iowa, the best church I think that a gay lady in the Midwest could ever have within the realm of Christendom. And a friend of mine here in Champaign County had a dream that I came to bless her holistic practice space. And from that moment, I knew that trouble was coming my way. And the message I think I received was that I'd gotten too comfortable. And there's nothing about my faith that says comfort is the outcome. We are a people who are disquieted by our faith, even even when we receive so much sustenance, love, and care in the midst. And so this is my third time returning to Champaign County and my last time. And that's it. (laughs) No more, spirit. No more. (laughs) (laughs) Shouldn't say that too loud, probably. Yeah. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about your story around faith and spirituality. And what did you experience growing up? And how has that evolved for you over the years? I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, which is the least churched part of the United States, Um, attending an Episcopal school and going to Lutheran church on weekends. So I grew up with a significant amount of religion in a place that is not very religious. Mm -hmm. And at a time when the religious right was on the rise and putting into place the first anti-gay ballot measures, my mother was very active from the beginning in addressing HIV AIDS. So I was very well aware of all the homophobia and ignorance around HIV AIDS and how gay people and people with addiction and sex workers were being treated. 
But I think more pivotal than that was when I was in seventh grade, my older sister's classmates in the sophomore year at our school, the students would go for a hike on Mount Hood. And her year, several of the students and two of the adults froze to death in a freak accident. Mm. And we proceeded to go to funerals. And at those funerals, I heard several pastors say it was God's will, mm. that it was God's will for this child to die. And I, it didn't match anything I knew or understood. It was profoundly offensive to me, revolting even. And then right after my senior year of high school, my best friend's mom died of cancer after having lived a very challenging, pain-filled life. And again, it was God's will. I thought, I don't need that God. That's not a God I need to be a part of. So I pretty actively rejected Christianity for the next, I don't know, 12 years or so. But when I came to the University of Illinois, not as a professor, but as a graduate student and a visiting teaching fellow and a teaching assistant, I was suddenly in a part of the world that was quite churched and was startled to find these 18-year-olds referencing faith. I was like, you're 18, you're not at home. You don't have to care about this anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I was teaching... Yeah, I was teaching sociology, so I'm asking these, you know, white kids from the North Shore to put themselves in the position of an African-American on the South Side and and look at how institutional differences and structural racism dictate life outcomes. Well, I needed to step into their shoes and try to find a respectful way to acknowledge their faith and that it was doing something for them. I met a fellow graduate student who had become Catholic in her 30s, radical feminist, lesbian. She'd had abortions. And she's like, I wanted a religious tradition that had a goddess figure. Mary. I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you could pick or choose. (laughs) I didn't know you could (laughs) make compromises to find what you needed. And then when I realized I wouldn't complete my doctoral program, my mom and I were talking and she said, what we do. And then I said, with no forethought, with no conscious awareness, I'll become a nurse or a pastor. Mm. And it was very startling, not of myself moment. So I did a lot of secret church exploration, went to the friends meeting here in Urbana. Mm -hmm. At that time, they were in the basement of the Illinois Disciples Foundation. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, so it was a while ago. Started reading, and I didn't tell anybody. I was intensely private about it. I think I even experienced shame, because as a gay person in America, Christians are the enemy. Uh, they're the ones who want to kill you. So when I actually returned to church and was telling my friends, it was much more difficult to say I'm a Christian than it ever was to say I'm gay hmm. because of all the baggage that Christianity has intentionally picked up along the way and the garbage it continues to spew. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So how did you end up picking United Church of Christ? That's a great question. I returned to church through the Lutherans, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which was, you know, one of my traditions. But it was before they were ordaining gay people. Mm-hmm. And my pastor at the time, we, my church was part of community organizing, which involved people sharing their story. Like, can we connect on the issues through our story? Mm-hmm. And so my pastor at the time asked if I would share my sense of call and the barriers in worship. So I did. And I said, I feel this call to ordination. I don't think it'll ever happen because I'm gay. And then I went to sit down and he said, wait. And I was like, oh no, what's he going to do to me? And he said, I want to invite everyone who is willing to stand with Mittens. My nickname is Mittens. <laughs> and I want to invite everyone who is willing to stand with Mittens through this journey to come forward now. And everyone in the room came forward and put their hands on me. Mm. Yeah. 
And the conversations I had with people after that, one woman who has a gay daughter, she came up to me, she said, I know I've said some terrible things, but I see the spirit in you. Another gentleman, African-American man who had to go to Canada to marry his white wife and was in a part of the voting body around gay ordination, he said, I know what this is like. I know what it's like to be legislated against, and I'm going to stand with you because this is God's work. But then I moved back to my second time, moving back to Urbana to be with my future wife, and the local Lutheran church was not what they called reconciled in Christ. They were not ready for gays. And so we walked into Community United Church of Christ, and everyone's like, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Want to be on a committee? I'm like, oh. Okay. Uh, Genuinely supportive. And I experienced there the shocking awareness of people who just didn't care that we were gay and were just happy to be in community with us. Mm -hmm. And I had an elderly member named Dr. Jean Dew, who's just like, when are you going to go to seminary? I'm going to help pay for it. Wow. I was like, okay, no, right, 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 right. So when I did go to seminary, uh, the you know church sent me off, and then I heard from my school, Chicago Theological Seminary. We have this check from Dr. Jean Dew. Oh wow! I didn't know she would really do that. Wow! So the UCC really stood up for me, and when I was in my ordination process, because of a series of events, I was going to be up for um, employment sooner than the system would normally allow. And I was meeting with a regional body, and overheard them debating: Should we allow this? this accelerated process. And another elderly woman in the United Church of Christ said, if we really believe in Jesus Christ of love, we need to get this moving for her. Wow. Okay. So, right, you know, as an Oregonian, I don't tend to think of East Central Illinois as a hotbed of radicals. Mm -hmm. But here is this denomination and these churches that were in genuine relationship with me and their spirit and trusted me and supported me through it. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So you brought up earlier that when you were starting to look into the church and church involvement, you felt almost a sense of shame or having to be hidden about that interest because of being gay. And so I think I want to ask the question about how can you be gay and Christian? And I think a lot of people kind of ask that question one way, like, how can you still be Christian and be gay? And I want to ask it a different way. And how can you, as a gay person, be Christian? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's a lot, there are a lot of strikes against us in the yeah. institution. There are the human beings and the rules they've made. And then there are, of course, the so-called clobber passages mm-hmm. within the Bible. But with those clobber passages, I could ask the same question of how can you be female and be a Christian? Absolutely. The Bible's not great on women mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. So for me, it's a process of separating the institution from the faith, from the actual experience of my relationship with God, and how I finally came to be in relationship with the Bible. The Bible is not God. Mm-hmm. The Bible is not God. And there are people who 
and I respect us, understand it as the word of God, and yet it is not God. Mm-hmm. That object is not God. It's one of the voices of God. So I can approach scripture. I can approach it as literature. I can approach it from a socio-historical context. I can put it into the context of its day. I can agree with Martin Luther that revelation should never have been included. And I can relish its stories for good and for bad and how they speak to me on any given day, every, any given moment, and let those work with me, my experience of God and the communities of God that I am with. So being a Christian far transcends scripture. It is scripture and people and soul and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit that really doesn't care about our rules or our buildings or our bills. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. being gay within Christianity, the only problem is other people. It's not between me and God in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some people are starting to kind of forgo the label of being Christian and starting to try to differentiate themselves by saying they're a Jesus follower or they're, you know, they believe in the traditions and the the teachings of Jesus, but not necessarily in that label of Christianity and all its baggages. That's not a plural word, by the way. <laughs> All its baggages, <laughs> bad grammar on my part. Where do you stand on that? Or, 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 yeah. I think it's very politically significant and spiritually significant for me to claim the label of Christianity with the full rights and responsibilities that come with that as a queer woman. I know that my presence with the title of the reverend, my work as a priest, has been life-saving for people who need it. So I don't give that up. I own that. But for me, when I was in seminary, we had to write a constructive theology at the end. And I decided to sit with Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit as a quaternity rather than a trinity, that there was something that happened between Jesus and Christ. So if the Christ power was wisdom that was with God at the beginning, if the Christ is universal, there's the Jesus movement and there's Christ. So I started in my first church talking about Jesus who became the Christ. Because I, I mean, there's something transformative. That's what's powerful for me, that transformative moment. And this elderly gentleman who's got a bunch of hymns in our hymnal, very well respected, 100 years old at the time. He said, are we going to change the Christmas songs? So it's Jesus who became the Christ through our Christmas songs, because I don't think that's going to sound very good. Hey, <laughs> <Okay>, Wilbur. <laughs> so I remain comfortable with the term Christian because of the power of my embodiment, but because of my also my own experience of Jesus and the Christ and Holy Spirit and God, and knowing that those are still alive and open, living presences. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not about the institution. Institutions exist to keep institutions alive. Mm-hmm. All Christian institutions have fundamentally failed the Gospels because we have protected the institution over what the Gospels ask of us because we're human, right. which is what makes the Bible great because it points that out and says, right. and you are beloved. Right. And I think for people, so I know I kind of started learning about the Christ as a separate, I really like how you talked about it as a separate part of the Trinity itself. But I started learning that from Richard Rohr within the Catholic tradition and through the Center for Contemplation and Action. And I think he's bringing that sense to some other 
more traditional denominations that may not have ever even heard that differentiation between there's the Christ and Jesus, and they're actually two different things. If we could become more playful with our terms, Hmm. I think we would become more heartful people. God does not care how we construct the name of God. How could God care about all those fights about what is the nature of God? How could that be God's concern when God's concern was, I'm going to separate light from darkness. I'm going to put these animals out there. I'm going to make you a singular human being with all genders and beings in one. This is not a God who's being fussy about. This is my structure. And if you say my structure wrong, you are in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe we could be a little more playful, like Jesus was at times. Mm-hmm. We'd be more heartful. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the natural world around us, I think it can give a lot of indicators about that nature of God. And there isn't just a black and white, and that's it. There's all the variations in between. There's not just a light and dark. There's all the variations in between, and the natural world shows us that. So, which is a great transition into, you know, your ministry, your your business as a spiritual entrepreneur right now is called Wisdom and Wilderness. So I know you have a, a connection, a strong connection to creation. So tell me a little bit about what this ministry, what this mission that you're on is all about. Well, I'll share that I am as terrified as anyone else about what our climate change planet is going to look like. Uh, The changes in weather, the food insecurity, whether we'll have clean water, that's terrifying because I'm not going to pretend that God's going to come in and fix it. And I'm well aware that I'll be one of the lucky ones as a nice middle-class white lady in the center of the country. But I came through a series of experiences I didn't plan, namely ending up living out in the country, to connect with land in a way I never had before. And to find that even though what is happening in our wild world is unsettling, dangerous, and lethal, the wild world is still there. It is still there. It will outlast us. It will look different. There will be much heartache and pain. But creation has always been living and dying and birthing again. And it's part of our hubris to think that we won't be part of that death process as well. So I came to be an outdoor person, to get into gardening, into being in the woods and just wandering and finding all the scientific benefit that's been addressed with being outside and unplugged, hearing water sound, hearing bird song, seeing the different tracks and different poop and the different seasons, the cycles of life. So going from that place of the stories of creation in the Bible to being an intimate part of it and witness to it. So I took a class from a friend of mine who ran an outdoor, it was called Renewal in the Wilderness, so Mm -hmm. outdoor experience for renewal about eco-spirituality. And in the course of that, I learned about forest therapy, and my brain lit up in a way it had not since I first experienced a call to ministry. Mm. Yes, forest therapy, where we talk about how the forest is a therapist and the guide opens the door. Mm-hmm. If we can get past the enormous and false pressure that it's our little brains that are the only solution to our problems, if we can invite our partners in the untamed world to help us find a way, 
how much better will we be? So in forest therapy, I am a guide. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a leader. I don't have a prescribed outcome for anybody. I'm not thinking, oh, here's the emotional outcome I want someone to have. Oh, I want to make sure that they cry in this particular way. Mm. I am there to hold a container and a space to do some initial grounding meditation to get present in our senses, to then turn attention out to the environment around us, and then offer a series of invitations that are inspired by the physical place we are in that moment Mm. for a sensory, tactile, spiritual engagement. And then we end with tea, which is delightful, of course. (laughs) So I'm working up a walk at Allerton over one of the paths. It's two miles. We'll take three hours to do those two miles. Mm -hmm. It's not a hike. It is a slow walk of rewilding our souls and our bodies and getting all kinds of medicinal benefit in the process. Mm -hmm. So it feels like direct the kind of direct action I could not do as a parish priest when I'd prepare a sermon, go to committee meetings, address whatever the emergency of the week is. There was not ever time for me as a parish priest to do direct healing soul work with people. Mm -hmm. So what wisdom have you gained from that kind of experience? Or when you've accompanied others on that kind of experience, what wisdom comes from that? There's a sense of release. Since we're not reading, we're not scrolling, we're not drinking or eating, you know, so we're not self-medicating or distracting. There is an unadorned freedom that leads to weeping and laughing, depending on the person. A playfulness that I think, especially as a well-educated white Westerner, I'm not supposed to be playful, I'm supposed to be successful. So getting to be with grownups at play is... It's liberation, not the kind of liberation I used to work towards in organizing, but I think a liberation we need in order to work toward the liberation we need from systemic racism and white supremacy and and all of the rest. So there's wisdom to be found in connecting and slowing down and discovering what we already have in us as wild-born creatures, because we are wild-born creatures. Nothing is more wild than childbirth, at least from what I've seen from the births mm-hmm. I've been in. That is crazy time. Mm-hmm. That's all out of control. Mm-hmm. And it's spectacular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually, I think it's okay for us to be out of control sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And not in a damaging way, but in a, in a liberating way. It's okay for us to be yell scream, laugh, cry, roll around in the grass, <laughs> walk get with muddy. feet. <laughs> yeah, get muddy. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite pictures is from my uh, two of my kids when they were little and the nanny let them jump and roll around in mud puddles and then took pictures and sent it to me. And it's my favorite. It's my favorite picture, I think. Yeah. 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 So you say, you know, it matters about being in relationship with a tree or with your plant. We were talking about that earlier. I love my little house plants and have, I don't go so far as has names for them, but I have affectionate terms for them. But why does it matter about being in a relationship with something that is living, but maybe is not a, a cat or a dog or an animal? 
that is more fixed in time and space like a plant or a tree. It's funny, in the forest therapy training, we talk about the sentience that we will allow a dog or a cat to have, but then get all queasy if we think a tree has sentience. But it does. It might not be one we recognize, but it does. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of research now on, the, you know, the mother tree movement and how trees are interacting with each other, how they're interacting with all other plants, how they communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. There's a great study that in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, the trees rely on the salmon and salmon who die as they go up river to provide nitrogen for the trees. Wow. So we are no different than those trees. We need our planet, not just for food and for air, like we need it for our bodies to function. I was born in the 1970s and I look at kids who are born now, they are born with so much, not even just screen time, but more chemicals than someone of my generation. And they've been changed by it. I'm convinced that their level of chemical exposure from our artificial world has fundamentally changed who they are as creatures. We can reverse some of that by going outside we can reverse some of that or at least find other ways by being in connection with these other forms of sentience. It's actually genetically, biologically in ourselves that we need it to thrive and survive. Mm-hmm. Mm. I like to look at the Genesis story. This is my latest take on it of many that the reason humans are last in the Genesis story is because we are so utterly dependent on who comes before. Not humans are last because they're the best, but because we are the most dependent on every other element of creation. We need it. Mm. We need those little beings. Mm -hmm. And it goes back uh, to the, uh, you know, is it dominion over or is it stewards of? Even better companions, companions or supplicants too. Companions. Uh-huh. Ooh. I had this week the opportunity to do modified forest therapy with some people in assisted living. So they're not outside. They don't have good mobility. And the way they lit up to experience the smell of herbs, as we talked about the colors they received, the memories it brought up, was extraordinary. We're just sitting there rubbing a spearmint plant and the whole room changed. Mm. Mm. that's not false i mean that you can't fake that no that's Mm. an inborn need Mm -hmm. Mm. so i know you also do spiritual direction tell me a little bit about what that means to you like spiritual direction is kind of a broad term and maybe some people may not even be knowledgeable about it. So what does spiritual direction mean? And how do you? What's your philosophy around it? I wish it wasn't called spiritual direction. Since as you know, we're not directing anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a part of my ego that would love to tell everyone what to do all the time. (laughs) Um, And I know that's not good for me or creation. So My experience of being a spiritual director is getting to be a witness filled with awe as the directee explores their divine heart and God, as I use the term, God's call on their lives and open themselves to that which is and shall be and ever was. Amen. World without end, you know, amen. And I can work with anyone. 
on that. It doesn't have to be religious. We don't have to use the God word. I am constantly amazed and grateful for the myriad ways that people find to express what's happening in their souls and their spirits and to get to be alongside them as they seek the language, reject what hurts, embrace what heals. I've been with my current spiritual director for about six years and having her kind of track me with, you know, that person outside of my life who will say, but you remember when? Or to say, you know, you've been building up to this for a long time. When I told her I was making this change, she's like, yeah, this has been coming for two years. It's like, what do you mean it's been coming for two years? That she's the person who was attending to my spirit and, and hearing it with me and then able to to help me hold that story together. Hmm. So I see spiritual direction as a relationship between the director, the directee, and the divine to open those uh, ears of the heart that are so easily closed off by the world we live in. Mm. So for somebody who has never experienced that, what does the experience of like of that look like, sound like? And I know so it I could be probably to... different for every person, and I, and I realize that. But in general, what would you kind of how would you describe that for somebody who's never had somebody listen to them in step with God? So I always like to tell people that a big difference between spiritual direction and other rooms you might enter into where people are listening to you is there is no diagnosis and no end goal. So it's different than therapy. I'm not going to be like, you have this spiritual ailment, and now you will do this many prayers, and you shall be healed, and I'll see you next time. <laughs> so the first session I have with people is usually they ask a lot of questions and often begin to say, you know, this is my religious background. Okay, great. Next session. So, you know, that's your religious background. What is the spirit meant to you? What hasn't felt right? What has felt right? What pulled you here to make this appointment? What pulled you here to make this appointment? And sit with that because something has to happen for someone to go out of their way to make an appointment for spiritual direction. What pulled you here? What was the feeling? What was the spark? Was it frightening? Was it exciting? What do you want to name that pull that brought you here? And usually from then it just goes. And each month then it's an opportunity to say, and now? Mm -hmm. And now? Um, but for me, in my spiritual direction, I know there's some months when I'll say, I have to talk about X. Like I I had a death in my family and I, I told my spiritual director, I said, I need to talk about death. And I'm a priest. I mean, I deal with death all the time. I bury people. I'm at the deathbed. But this was my grief mm -hmm. that I was experiencing. And so I had the chance to sit with her and talk about grief and death in the context of my faith and pain, the pain I was having and the life I'd lived with this person. And to try to incorporate it into my understanding of the meaning of my life and my work. Hmm. Hmm. So it's, I think everyone's spiritual direction experience is different because people are different. Mm -hmm. You said something really interesting um, that, Oftentimes people will start with their religious understanding and then you inquire about their spiritual understanding 
how is religion and spirituality different? And what does it mean for people to be spiritual but not religious or religious and not spiritual? I don't want to speak for anybody else, so I can explain what I've witnessed. I've witnessed as a pastor that people can be the most faithful attendees of a church and think it is all hogwash. Have never prayed, have never had what they would name as an encounter with God, have never entered into mystery, but find the ritual and the routine enormously comforting. And for them, that is enough. That is what their religion is. And I have met people who have had transcendent experiences of the divine, a sense of God walking with them, a sense that they are, have a call, and who have never entered the doors of an institution and could not use language that would fit into any one particular religion. So, and then there are people who have both, people who have a religious tradition and a rich spiritual life. But in my experience within Christianity, Christianity has not done a good job of nurturing spirituality as I've experienced it. Mm -hmm. The United Church of Christ, the white part of the United Church of Christ tends to be pretty heady and intellectual which isn't to say the other people aren't heady and intellectual, but there's a tepidness around the power of the Spirit. So a few years ago, I was preaching on baptism of Christ. What a spectacular story. There are different versions of them in, in the Bible, but they're all strange and weird and powerful. And so I said, is there anyone who wants to be baptized today? And the whole room was just like, oh, what is she doing? This is off script. Can't just call people. You can, and I was like, I can tell you guys are freaking out right now. They're like, you can't just ask. And so what was great was the guy in the room with a mohawk. He's like, I'll get baptized. <laughs> so I have this experience of, I don't know if it's embarrassment, doubt, the social pressure to be a certain way. But there's been this, in my experience, an aversion to being caught up in the spirit, to being mm -hmm. caught by the spirit, you know, to be laid out by the spirit. Mm -hmm. So I really have a clear distinction between religion and spirituality. They don't necessarily coexist. Mm -hmm. I wish they did, but they don't necessarily. Mm. And I've met a lot of young people, well, and even some of my own children who have an aversion to religiosity, but don't know how to even open themselves up to spirituality because they still see that word spirituality as religious when it may not even be the same thing. Yeah. And then what's your framework if you don't have the religion to even just to reject? Mm -hmm. So what I tell people, my, my Christianity is not in opposition to anyone else's religion. Years ago, I read a book by Thich Nhat Hanh recently died, extraordinary person, where he said, it's great that all of you Westerners want to become Vietnamese Buddhists, but go home and clean your own house. And I thought, oh, yeah, I need to go home and clean my own house. So I'm going to let these be the stories I stake my life on. I'm going to stake my life on these stories, but not to the exclusion of anyone else staking their lives on their stories. Mm -hmm. So for me, the stories are the framework. Mm -hmm. But it is not the place that will decide if I have a quality relationship with God or whether I'm in or out. It mm -hmm. will not be the place that defines God for me, defines my salvation for me. But it is my space to react from and mm -hmm. reflect on. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. And that gives, I think, looking at it that way actually invites, to use your word again, liberation, because you're not so closely held to your beliefs and confined by those beliefs or the stories that you can't let some of that water flow in between the cracks. And again, one of the things that I've always loved about Richard Rohr is that he talks about if you dig down into your own traditions deep enough, you'll run into the living water that runs through them all. And that doesn't negate our traditions or each of our traditions because they're beautiful. And there's a lot of kind of sacred human truths where the spirit resides that are there in all of them. Yes. Hmm. So for some of those people who have moved away, maybe, or felt harmed from an institution, institutional religion or a church community, I know one of the things as humans we need is ritual. And so they're not getting ritual from what remains. So talk a little bit about what ritual is and why it's important and maybe how people can reclaim some of that ritual outside of church walls. So I was thinking about this earlier today and I was noticing how like Starbucks every morning, there's a line of people Mm. and it's probably the same people that they have a ritual that this marks the start of the day. This is this sustenance, this interaction that they need every day. It's not just about the caffeine because you know, you can get caffeine at home. So there's a ritual element there. Humans as a species are hardwired for ritual, for habits and practices that shore up our days in the midst of chaos. Well, at least I had that. At least I had that. Rituals to help interpret a time, a time of change, and rituals to mark times of change, like birthing and dying. Ritual is part of what we are as creatures. I used to ask my congregants, so part of my investment in Christianity is not being supersessionist and to receive Judaism as a whole and good and beautiful religion that has not been replaced by Christianity or improved on by Christianity. It is. And we stole it. We stole a lot of it. We stole their Bible. But we got to receive the Hebrew Testament as it is. And once you go there and you become more aware of the history of anti-Semitism and your relationship with more Jewish people, you hear more stories about having to hide your religion. So one of my professors was a rabbi and she said, who's maybe 10 years older than me, and she said that every new house she's looked at, she's wondered, is there a place I can hide if I need to, if they come for me? Mm. That's, I mean, that's the world we live in. And so I always ask my congregants, what would you take with you if you had to go into hiding, if you had to hide who you are? My hope always was that they would say Holy Communion. It is, for me, sacramental in the sense that it is, a Augustine said, it's a visible sign of God's invisible grace, where people can come together and eat with and eat for anyone and everyone. So in my tradition, we have an open table. There's no rule about who can serve and who, who can come. But it's this act of feeding and being fed, of receiving these symbols of God's love right into your body. 
So what ritual is going to sustain each one of us as we continue to go through this time of terror on our planet, uh, with our planet, with our societies, and with each other? What are the rituals that are helping us make meaning and give us guidance? I have as much a Starbucks problem as anyone, but that's not a story that's going to help me navigate my reaction to uh, today's news about Ukraine. Communion does. Communion does. My baptism helps me understand my place in relationship to everyone, which is that we are all part in the stream of life. Mm -hmm. So my hope through my private practice is to work with people on their rituals. But I think that there's a real shyness around that and uncertainty because if it isn't part of a structure, is it real? If it isn't part of an institution, does it count? And I would say yes. Mm-hmm. So I'd be, I would love to work with people who need to set up a ritual around like their chemotherapy treatment for their beginning and for their end, to work up a ritual for moving into hospice, to work up a ritual for kids leaving home. These are significant moments in our lives that bear reflecting on and building meaning around and marking. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, this is a time of invitation as people are looking at their relationship with their institutional religions or their church community to examine the rituals that we have and make sure that they're life-giving and that they're things that people can connect with in a very real way and not just things that we do because we should do or it's time to do it or we sleepwalk through it because just going through the motions is not where the value is, but actually Mm. connecting with the symbols and the words and the actions and the experience and the underlying meaning of what it all what it all brings to us as a reminder is important. So, so I really see there's a movement in the world with people who are calling out injustices that they see and they want to make change. And especially, you know, there's a lot of millennials, there's a lot of Gen Z, especially, who are really feeling this pull of of social justice and, you know, they feel some of the anxiety that you named about our climate and, and just what's not right with the world. How does having a spiritual practice either individually or communally, what does that have to do with making change? I think it's telling that the two of the people get lifted up most often as most powerful change makers are religious people. So Dr. King and Gandhi, it's not accidental. It's not accidental that their faith traditions allowed them to do work that got them killed for the sake of others. When I came to Illinois and had my, my eyes opened in a different way through sociology, I became very involved on campus at that time around the anti-chief movement, unionizing graduate students, and finding other queer people to go talk to the human sexuality courses. And I called it Gays on Parade and started organizing the people to go in and be like, we're humans too. Um, (laughs) Every class, someone would be like, how do you guys do it? I was like, if you can't figure that out, what kind of sex are you having? Come on. (laughs) And so I was training people and I got too big for my britches because one night 
I was standing there training this group and there were three or four young people of color who came in and I just ignored them and brushed them off. And they were part of the newly formed Queers of Color Coalition on campus. And they rightly called me out in every circle that they went into because I was being the epitome of white liberal feminism. Like 100%, I own it. So all of a sudden I'm being discussed over list serves because it was the olden times. Uh, You know, I've got friends talking to me about it at parties. And I even had a friend negotiate a meeting, a parlay with the leadership to try to talk about what happened. And I shut down after because I had the luxury of shutting down after that. And I realized that all of my justice work had been in my head, not embodied in my heart. I did not have the emotional wherewithal to grow and to sustain the level of pain and change and creativity needed to do justice work. I didn't have the stories I needed. I didn't have the community I needed. I didn't have that more than meanness that was needed. I thought it was all up to me and my thinky thoughts and how smart I am and how much I care. It's not enough. That's not enough for me to undo the white supremacy that I've been trained into. That's not enough for me to address the queer phobia I have in myself. I think it is vital for anyone who's doing justice work. And I got back to justice work. I got back in through community organizing in in a very relational way where you actually know people and you lift up your stresses. You don't learn what other people's stresses are and act on them. So, you know, very much rejecting the white liberal feminism model. To go ahead in the world that we have as it is to try to make the world as we believe it should be. We need to know what our source is of that should and have a safe space, a calm space, a prayerful space to savor that and to rest in it, even if it's one hour a month, to rest in that well of being and that source of life that points toward the liberation that's still required. Mm-hmm. For some people, that's going to happen in a church community. For some people, it's going to be one-on-one in spiritual direction. And I don't think this is a this is an experience only I had. I think I, I've seen this countless times with people who are out there doing the good work. Mm-hmm. What is your root story? How are you learning to read the tattoo that was placed on your heart by the holy? And how are you receiving the love that nobody else can give you but mm-hmm. creation? Mm-hmm. That is so powerful. And I don't know that there's, I haven't heard very many people in our East Central Illinois area who are talking about those things. And I'm excited about having more of those kinds of conversations because that resonates so deeply. So from that space, although you are a middle-class white woman who is also gay, so you do have a story of marginalization, but what message would you want to share with people who feel marginalized or excluded by the church itself, by the institutional church? And how can we invite them back into something more spiritual and God-connected? 
God is besotted with love for you. God is besotted with love for you. God is gaga, head over heels, weeping with joy, grasping at you with adoration and love. And I know that from my experience, and I know that from the stories of the institution that has hurt you. I think about the story of uh, Mary of Magdala, who was the apostle to the apostles, who was the first one to proclaim the good news of the risen Christ. It was a woman, a woman whom Jesus had healed perfectly. We have all these stories about her being a prostitute. That's not actually in the Bible. That was an, you know, added later by a pope in the 11th century. What we have is Mary being cursed with seven demons, and seven is a number of perfection, and she is completely healed of them. So a woman who's been healed completely by the Christ is the first person to receive this impossible news from an impossible source of an impossible hope. You are Mary of Magdala if you have been injured. You are Mary of Magdala. And then there's that fantastic story of the Ethiopian eunuch. So someone who is, you know, in our terms, genderqueer, he's outside of the culture, he's outside of the religion. He hears the story, he's like, I need to get baptized. See ya. And then goes off to do his work. Like he's like, I'm not, I'm not part of your church, but I, you know, I got moved. I got moved. And I now am drenched in baptismal waters. Let's go. So the stories are right there. Our presence is right there at the heart, the beating heart of redemption and reconciliation and liberation. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Uh Amen. <laughs> so Eileen, how can somebody connect with you, people who have been inspired by your words, people who are interested in working with you? How can they connect with you? My URL is wisdomandwilderness.net. And that's the best place to start. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. All that jazz. Wisdomandwilderness.net. And we'll put all those numbers and letters and periods and WWWs uh, in the show notes. <laughs> and Wisdom and Wilderness is, is in Urbana, right? Yep. Uh, 1210 East Main Street in Urbana. I am part of a collection that's a consortium called Pure Being. So it's a holistic health and healing center. And I do the spirit nature part. Mm -hmm. And she's also a soul care partner. I am at soul care. Yeah. So I just want to close out our conversation with some rapid fire questions that I ask all of our guests. It kind of evens the playing field. It, it's a little bit playful. So are you up for that? I'm ready. <laughs> scary. It's not scary, I promise. So what's something that people get wrong about you? They mistake my kindness for being a doormat or an idiot. And I do not cotton a lot of horse manure. Where do you see the divine as most alive for you in this season? Uh, yesterday, it was out at Allerton Park as I was walking, and I just prayed out loud to God. God, let me never forget this moment. Let me carry this moment with me forever, wherever I may go, whatever the world may hold. Let me never take for granted the ability to breathe and walk and be outside today. Mm -hmm. What's one thing in your life that might seem ordinary to other people, but is sacred for you? My marriage. Mm. What are you deeply grateful for right now? My siblings. How many siblings do you have? Brother and sister. And what's a book that you would recommend to the audience? 
been wall carers braiding sweetgrass. Mm. That comes up frequently. So I know it's just so good. Just read it already, people. I resisted mm. too. <laughs> And I really like that because I think that there's a lot that we can learn from people who are not like us that are coming from other, whether they're other faith traditions or an indigenous spirituality or other perspectives that can make our faith and our journey that much richer. You had mentioned earlier about um, kind of seeing Judaism as its own religion and there's a rabbi, a quote from a rabbi that I always go back and really love is that they look at their scripture as if it's an 80-faceted diamond and just mm-hmm. continue to turn it and turn it and turn it. And I think that's the invitation that we have to be looking at our own ways of beliefs and our doctrine and our dogma and our scripture and our stories and just keep looking at them from different perspectives and different different imaginations, different eyes, and it just makes it that much more rich. Mm, amen to that. Mm-hmm. So Braiding Sweetgrass is from um, an indigenous author, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. So, yeah. All right. Well, this has just been such a delightful conversation. Is there any parting words that you would like to end with? That joy is possible even in the midst of despair. You may not be happy today, but there is still a capacity for joy in a simple touch, a smile, a moment where you catch your breath. And that is worth everything in this life. Hmm. Good, good reminder. So thank you so much. This has just been delightful. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. Or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, Come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table, and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.